I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we're a podcast that's devoted to developing deep and clear thinking and hopefully providing a forum for discussion and debate. We don't always debate a bunch, but we do want to promote friendly discussion at least. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, we're in Brandon's office, and we also have our friend Morgan Bird with us to discuss, I guess we're going to do four parts on the mystery of Christ, his covenant, and its kingdom by Samuel Renahan. Uh, we've had Dr. Renahan on the show before in the past to talk covenant theology. So if this is your first foray into this, I'd probably recommend go listen to that. I'll drop that in the show notes. You can go find it. You can go listen to it. Um, so just, I guess, why are we talking about covenant theology again? Uh, why are we di- digging into this more? I, I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I think this is something that we just like to talk about. I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. Second, um, you know, we're Baptists, and this is a Baptist guy who's writing a substantial introduction to covenant theology, which, I mean, there's some intros to covenant theology from a Baptist perspective, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, I think Pascal Denault has the one, but that's more historical. It's not like yeah. systematic and treatment. Uh, I can think of, what's that one? Uh, Craig Nichols, I think. But uh, yeah, That's he, from a different He's got like 50,000 graphs in there. Yeah. And it's a little bit higher shelf. I think this book here is a really good book for lay level uh, members, for pastors to engage in the topic at hand. So we're going to be going through section by section, four episodes, one on each section talking about it. And I understand, I know a lot of our listeners have a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different interests. So not every episode is going to interest you and that's fine. But I do think, at least for me, I'm a equal opportunity theologian. Equal theological opportunist, if that's the way to put it. I think every theological topic is interesting and worthy of talking about. So sometimes we talk about history. Sometimes we talk about just purely Baptist stuff. Sometimes we talk analytic theology. And for these episodes, we're going to be talking covenant theology. So if you don't remember who Morgan is, one more just reminder. like he, he we, We've done an episode with him in the past on, on Abraham Booth. I think it was actually really really well received. And a lot of people have even after months after the recording have uh, mentioned how they really enjoyed it. So if you haven't listened to that before, go listen to it. Uh, it's probably our most popular episode from somebody that most people don't know who he is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's probably right. So I think you should go check that out. He's here with us and we're excited to talk about it. So enough, enough of me giving an intro why don't we just dig right into the material? I think in my head, the idea was we're going to give a brief summary definition of what we're talking about. And then we're just going to kind of talk about it like we were actually at a coffee shop or just hanging out in Brandon's living room and yep. discussing these things. Because I think that's where a lot of the fun and interesting things come is when you just hang out with friends and talk about it and it just goes. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to see how this goes. Yeah, so the book, um, again, just so we're clear, this is The Mystery of Christ, uh, His Covenant and His Kingdom by Sam Renahan. So it's, it's split up into four parts. And so this first episode is going to be part one, which is uh, methodology and hermeneutics. Um, and so we're going to start out by laying out a series of distinctions that he makes in the opening pages of the book that I think kind of are going to help all of us um, be able to better discuss this as we go forward. But um, and Morgan's going to kick us off with one of those distinctions in a minute. But um, before we do that, I really liked, I just want to say I really appreciated how he opens the book and closes the book 
um, where he he basically says that our doing theology is is an act of worship. Um, he says that you know when we're studying God, we're we're in a um, a sea of infinity. And he says that our reaction ought to be humble silence broken only by the very doxology Paul proclaimed when he, when confronted by the same. Uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So he says that we should be uh, humbled by even trying to attempt to discuss these things. Um, and I, I do think that um, he comes across that way throughout the book. And he, like I said, he, he finishes the book on that same note too. So that was something that I appreciated. But um, so we, like I said, we want to start out with a series of, of helpful distinctions. And the first one that we're going to discuss um, is a distinction between biblical and systematic theology. So Morgan, why don't you give us the lay of the land? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's interesting, Brandon and I were even talking beforehand about where covenant theology fits. You know, I think in one sense, um, in this book, he talks about both biblical and systematic theology, and it's almost like he makes a case that covenant theology has this unique place where it it is it is almost it almost fits into both categories. That because um, it has the progressiveness like a biblical theology would, where there's different definitions out there. Biblical theology, I think there's different ways you can think of it. I think one way to think of it is. Maybe the grand story of Scripture, kind of what are, what are the high points, kind of skipping the rock across mm-hmm. all of Scripture to, to understand what is the whole Bible about. Um, or it could be, you know, maybe picking one theme in the Scriptures and, and working through and saying, okay, what does the whole Bible have to say about this one particular theme? And so in one sense, covenant theology does have a, a biblical theological aspect to it because it does try to summarize the whole teaching of the Bible. You know, we're, we're, we're starting... Um, in the garden, and then we're tra- tracking things all the way to the New Jerusalem. And so in that sense, you know, it, it connects to biblical theology, but um, it also connects to systematic theology because um, it makes conclusions. It draws logical conclusions that are um, doctrinal. There are sections in this book about um, things like justification and sanctification, and, um, and, and there, there's times when, you know, he, he marries biblical and systematic theology. And I would say he, he argues in the book that covenant theology is almost like this unique kind of special uh, ver, uh, um, brand of theology that, that weds those two things together uh, mm-hmm. in, in a unique way. So I don't know, what, what do you guys think? If you had to categorize whether covenant theology situates better with biblical theology or systematic theology, um, what do you think? Uh, that's that's difficult. I don't know. Yeah, I, we we actually were discussing this earlier today, and I think it maps on a little bit better to biblical theology. But I mean, I'm happy to be corrected on that. I just think with the the especially maybe um, with how how Reformed Baptist hermeneutic wants to to look at scripture yeah. with it being really progressive and farther steps and, mm-hmm. you know, shadow to substance. And, mm-hmm. um, that language is just progressive in nature, you know? Um, so that seems to, to fall more under the umbrella of biblical theology for me, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. As I think about how Baptist, or I guess 16th, 17th century Baptists, such as Nehemiah Cox and others have wanted to cash out covenant theology. They've done it in a more biblical theological mode than I would think Presbyterians and others have. So Westminster, I think, is more systematic in nature than is something like the 1689 Confession, where it's much more progressive in its understanding. Because the way I understand biblical theology is more of a progressive historical outworking of 
what the Bible is explaining, whereas mm-hmm. systematic theology is more along the lines of, I have a question or a topic, I'm going to amass all of the data mm-hmm. and organize it into a system. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to have to lay it like I'm not going to be able to put it right on top of the Bible and say, look, see, it's right here. Mm-hmm. You have to do a little bit more logical, constructive work, which is fine. I, I like systematic theology. I practice that more than I do biblical. But I think covenant theology probably does feel more at home in the biblical theology realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not saying either of those mm-hmm. methods are, are bad or either of those methods are wrong. Um, just, you know, they're different ways of reading the Bible and gleaning different things. I think you can glean unique things from both methods. Not not either method is a complete, fully formed package that this is the way you can only do theology. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think of analytic theology. It's not the only mode of doing theology. It is a way of doing theology that helps us to understand things, but it's not the, the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. Nor is it... Uh, so I guess it's not, it's not the only... So when I think of like necessary and sufficient conditions, it's, it's not... It, maybe it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. So biblical theology is a necessary thing to do if we want to understand the Bible, but it is not sufficient and it's not going to give us everything that we need to know mm-hmm. in order to have a fully robust understanding of who God is mm-hmm. and our relationship to him and, and the world. Mm. Well, and I think part of the reason that is, is it's, it is its own discipline. And I think if you're the kind of person, and maybe you're sitting here listening to this and you're thinking, I don't quite understand what they're talking about. How does all this fit together? I think the reason this book might be helpful for you is in some ways, I feel like um, Sam Renahan does show us how biblical theology feeds into systematic theology. Yeah. And he, he and he also uh, interacts with historical theology. So there's a lot of uh, historical sources that he brings out here, uh, which is, I think, you know, what he did his doctoral dissertation in. And so, um, you know, this is a really, this is a great book for its content, but it's also a great book for its method. I think we can learn a lot from how he's doing theology and how he's uh, drawing conclusions from what I think is good exegesis and uh, and a good framework for understanding the Bible. Um, I, I know in my own life, I've been helped so much uh, by um, having a good biblical theology that when I come come to the Bible and I can I can get a sense of okay where does this passage fit in this larger story of Scripture and I feel like what he's looking at with covenant theology here from a Baptist perspective is almost giving Baptists an understanding of, okay, when I come to a text, how can I see how that text fits in the larger redemptive mm-hmm. story that is playing out in history? Yeah. And I think that's one of the great values of this book. One of the interesting comments he makes, though, in the beginning on the difference between biblical and systematic theology that I think is worth talking to, he references James Dolzel and his book, All That Is In God. And in that book... Uh, Dozel says this, Biblical theology, with its unique focus on historical development and progress, is not best suited for the, suited for the study of theology proper. End quote. And then Sam goes on to say, Because God is pure act, affecting creation but unaffected by creation, a method based on progressive developing history is not the appropriate approach for that area of study. He then goes on to say, Covenant theology is not devoted to that subject area of study. Therefore it can follow this mode. But I mean, I just, I don't know if we want to section off God from biblical theology, Mm -hmm. um, the doctrine of God from that. I think that's uh, like, personally, I'm a classical theist. 
Uh, I would probably affirm almost everything that James Dolezal does. <laughs> and yet I, I think this is too extreme to say that systematic theology is the only discipline or philosophical theology, contemplative theology, whatever, whatever you want to call it, is the only discipline that can really understand who God is. And biblical theology just ha- doesn't have anything to say. If, if nothing else, that that throws up huge red flags to a lot of Protestants, I think, who want to say, well, I want to have the biblical actual, like the actual language and development of the Bible have some voice in how I think about who God is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's right. I I think obviously you've got to be careful. It, it's not as simple as saying, well, look, it, you know, it says God, you know, changed, therefore he, he changes. <laughs> I, I think that's a really simplistic way to look at it. You know, just reading the text off and assuming that it maps perfectly back onto God. But I don't think any area of theology should remove one of these disciplines. I think biblical and systematic theology need to go together in every area, uh, including covenant theology. So I think we were just talking about covenant theology. I don't know how to disentangle them. I think that's got to be the case everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I don't ha- I don't feel like we have to talk about that a lot. I just thought that was an interesting point he made there on page 12. Um, yeah, I almost read it to, to mean, and I don't know, it's obviously open for interpretation, but I almost read it where he was saying, hey, so much of biblical theology is developing a theme and it's showing how that theme was um, from a revelation standpoint was enlarged and expanded upon. And it's almost like he's saying we have to be really, well, he says it more strongly than this. I might say it this way. We have to be really, really careful treating God that way because we might, we might run the risk of saying that God somehow has like a progressive existence Mm -hmm. and, and that, that, I think that that's where maybe he's saying it's not the best it's not the best discipline for yeah. studying theology proper because of the progressive uh, way that biblical theology just has to be. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's why he maybe said it the way he said it. Uh, maybe it is a little strong. but um, you know, I, I think it brings up a good point though. Um, there are certain disciplines that one, that they both they all interconnect. Um, but there probably are certain disciplines of theology. I mean, there's there's a reason we have more than one. I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. There's a reason we have more than one discipline of theology, and that um, honestly, um, I, I feel like covenant theology among, especially among Baptists, is something that we have been afraid of. It's something yeah. that we've been afraid to engage in. It's something we've been afraid to, to deal with. I think it's it's easy to think, oh, covenant theology belongs to other traditions. And so I really appreciate him coming out and just putting a, a straightforward um, approach for us of what it could look like for Baptists to think seriously about covenant theology. Which is funny, because I think if you actually do look at the his- history of Baptists, mm-hmm. so, you know, they, they're coming out in the 16th, 17th century, what are they obsessed with? Covenant theology. Yeah. So I, I feel like if you want to go to our ancestors, the guys who started it all, that's what you're going to be wanting to focus on and not be afraid of. So it's really interesting that... For whatever reason, I mean, I'm not a sociologist nor anything, so I can't give you like an exact genetic reason like this, you know, X happened, therefore Y happened, therefore Z happened, therefore we're all afraid of it. But it's just, it is fascinating that even over just a couple hundred years, we could lose Mm -hmm. something that was central to Baptistic identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I guess we can... Uh, maybe move on to the second distinction that he makes, and, and that is between uh, creation and covenant. So um, man's 
um, natural relationship to God is is the relationship between you know creature and creator, and, and by virtue of that relationship, man owes complete obedience to God because God is um, his creator. But God um, does not owe man any kind of reward for that obedience because it is just part of the the natural relationship. So that is the the um, creator creature relationship. But then in, in contrast to that. Renahan says we have the covenant relationship, and he says um, that, that covenants include obligations beyond those naturally required, such as a command regarding the trees in Eden, the command of circumcision, or the command of baptism. Covenants are arrangements provided by God beyond the natural creator-creature relationship, and that is basically the, all of the, um, the specifics to the arrangement in that covenant are basically whatever God says those um those specifics are. So um, I thought that was a, a helpful um, distinction. And I don't know if it's in this part of the book or it's later, but I know I put on our notes, you know, where um, something and and if anybody that's listening or, or maybe Morgan, I don't know if you do, but people who have read a lot of Klein, um, I think Klein's thing is, is, is kind of the opposite of this mm-hmm. where he wants to say that, that the re- relationship between man and, and God as creator and creature is the covenant relationship. And that is not um, a, a second thing. And, and Renahan seems to be going a, a different route. I don't know if you guys have any. Well, I think that one of the reasons that it's um, valuable to make this distinction is that it shows us as we, as we kind of step over the ledge into having this discussion about covenant theology, uh, this understanding that, Anytime God comes into a covenant relationship with anyone, that 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 is a gracious relationship. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to talk later about the difference between a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. Mm-hmm. But whether it's a covenant of grace or a covenant of works, it is still gracious for God to enter into that relationship in that way. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I think it's valuable and it's helpful to see um, covenant as something that what he, what he calls in the book as supernatural. In other words, it's beyond what is natural. And the reason that um, God, I think the way the 1689 puts it is that God graciously condescended down to like bring himself in relationship with man through covenant. And so I don't know, it it keeps us from um, seeing whatever these things are, whatever these laws or stipulations or things that God does impose. I think we just always tend to think of imposition in a negative way, but, but he's trying to help us see, no, when God comes and he lays out these covenants, um, it's because he's giving humans the opportunity to know him and to to relate to him in a, in a unique way. And so I think it's a helpful distinction. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, honestly, the distinction is, is crucial for me being a Baptist. For the way Renahan's laid it out, I think it's fantastic. Uh, understanding that covenants are not natural arrangements. Natural, natural things. We can draw, I guess, clear distinctions from and clear inferences from from one covenant to the next. And that was the point he makes about necessary consequences. Yeah. He says that doesn't apply to covenants because you can't you can't map on, you know, what's going on in this covenant to this other covenant because covenants, by virtue of what they are, they're 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 unique. So so you can't take I, the obvious thing is going to be circumcision and, and, and baptism, and you can't you know there. Is, so his his whole thing is that there is. 
um, no necessary consequence before covenants because covenants are not are not natural things. So each each one is has its own unique stipulations. Um, sorry, but no, no, that's good. So I mean, Renahan on page fifteen he says because covenants are not natural arrangements, the specific nature and details of any given any given covenant are no more and no less than what God makes them to be. Mm-hmm. Their details cannot be discovered, determined, or defined apart from God's sovereign institution because they do not exist apart from God's sovereign institution. So I really do think that is a crucial, crucial, crucial distinction to make. Uh, I mean, personally, I, I am persuaded by quite a few arguments that um, Presbyterians and others make, but I, I don't know how you can make sense of this uh, reality when it comes to covenants, because I think the Presbyterian understanding of covenants, or they're under, the reason that they want to move infant baptism over to the new covenant is because, well, look, we look at the old, the Abrahamic covenant, and this is how circumcision was practiced. Therefore, we infer nothing has changed unless it's stated, mm-hmm. which I understand the impetus behind that hermeneutic, just saying, unless it's explicitly told to me otherwise, I should believe the same. But that's just not how covenants work. Covenants are unique institutions that are not natural arrangements and therefore we cannot just naturally assume that everything's going to be the same. Yeah. So I, I really think and that's I'm sure we'll get point. into that more when when we get to a section about baptism, but well, well, and I think that leads really well into the next distinction because one of those things that come to come to be made up in each of these covenants is a law. So there's always some some sort of a law involved with a covenant. And so um, if what uh, Jordan and Brandon has just been talking about is true, that a covenant is something that is um, supernatural and not natural, then it also means that within those covenants, there is both natural law and then what he calls positive law. Uh, so then natural law are those things that are always true in every case, um, no matter what covenant, just by that creature-creator relationship. But positive law are things that have been added uh, that that can be added or subtracted in each of the covenants on an individual basis. And so God may come in one covenant and say that on top of the moral law, there's an extra positive law. But just because he gives a positive law in one covenant does not mean that that same positive law will be true in another, in another covenant. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between... And I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's super helpful. I know... Um, this may be just going back to like youth group days or stuff, but you ask questions <laughs> like, you know, why was there a tree in the garden or why, you know, or why was this happen? Or it was circumcision like a, is that a moral thing? Or is that like, yeah. you know, and he, th- this positive law concept is so helpful because it shows that while on the one hand, some of the laws that God gives in, um, in the individual particular covenants don't themselves carry necessarily moral or ethical value. Mm. Uh, they take on moral or ethical value because it is God himself who has commanded right. it. Yep. And so then it's no longer about um, whether it's quote unquote right or wrong. It becomes right or wrong because if we obey, then we're obeying God. Right. <laughs> and if we disobey, we're disobeying God. And yeah. so I think that for me, that 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 clears a lot of things up, you know, and some of those questions you have about why did God tell them to do this or why did he ask them not to do that? Well, sometimes it's a positive law yeah. and not a moral law. Yeah. Yep. Um, another, this is foundational. I mean, for, for everything we're discussing here, discussing here, another um, distinction is between the law and the gospel. And Morgan, I know we were discussing this earlier, um, the two of us, and how this was 
really big for you. So he, he talks about there's there's two different ways that we can understand the distinction between law and gospel. One is um, in a historical sense, and one is in a, a doctrinal or or a um, substantial sense. So why don't you unpack that for us a little bit, Morgan, and, and basically tell everybody what you told me about you know why it was such an important kind of revelation for you. Sure. I mean, I think both in my own life, reading the Bible, teaching the Bible, uh, talking to others who read the Bible— um, Let's just call it what it is. When you get to the New Testament and you see the word law, it's sometimes confusing. You're not sure exactly what's being talked about. Um, You're not sure if they're talking about specifically the Ten Commandments. You're not sure if they're talking about the Pentateuch. You're not sure if they're talking about the entire Old Testament. Um, We're we're sometimes not sure. And so then what they say about um, the law uh, can then lead us to wrong conclusions. Um, lead us to uh, take positions that aren't necessarily biblical. So he sets up this this um, this distinction that I think is super helpful. So from a substantial standpoint or a doctrinal standpoint, the law and the gospel represent two different paths of righteousness. In other words, when, if we're asking the question, how can a person be right before God? Mm-hmm. There are two answers. Uh, one is by keeping the law perfectly, which we know that none of us have done, none of us can do, um, except for Christ who did. The other is through the gospel. That is to be um, to receive salvation, to be right in God's standing by grace. And so um, that th- this is where it gets tricky. That law-gospel distinction, as it pertains to substance, actually flows uh, consistently through another law gospel distinction, which is the historical distinction between the time of the law, mm-hmm. which we might say would, is between uh, the fall of Adam until the coming of Christ, and then the time of the gospel, mm-hmm. which is the time after Christ. And so understanding that the first law gospel distinction, the two paths of righteousness, have existed in both the time of the law and in the time of the gospel, yeah. I think is super helpful. And it helps you when you get to the New Testament and you're you know, reading these things about, especially what it has to say about the law, you can be careful not to think that it's somehow maybe negating the Old Testament or, um, or even um, negating the law itself. So I think it becomes a really helpful uh, two distinctions for us to have there. Mm. That's good. You got anything, Jordan? I don't. Um, nothing to add. <clears throat> Another one is is the distinction between history and mystery. So th- this idea of the the mystery of Christ, um, Paul uses this language in Ephesians and Colossians. And one thing that I thought was really helpful is that the way Renahan explains it is that like a mystery, um, the way that Paul is using it and the way that it's being used in this book and the way that um, Baptists understand it in a, in a covenantal sense. It's not that there's this thing out there and then God is is hiding it from us, but it's it's something that God is slowly revealing little by little um, over time. So he says, um, mystery is not a means of concealing, but revealing. But revealing mystery is a mode of revelation, of way of communicating. And I just found that to be pretty fascinating. And and it's on page twenty four of the book. He says the mystery of Christ is used in the New Testament to explain. The relation of the Old and New Testaments is of paramount importance to covenant theology and demands much greater attention in covenant, covenantal literature than it is received. If, according to Paul, the mystery of Christ is that which was hidden and is now revealed, any covenant theology that does not address this in, in, this in fullness by definition is by definition deficient 
and does not follow the biblical pattern of explaining God's plan for the fullness of time. Uh, it is the legend uh, to the map of redemptive history. So, I mean, this is a key concept that if we if we miss, like if we remove the mystery, then we we've gone one way, and if we make you know too much of the mystery, we've gone too much in the other way. So, I think it's important um, the way he's kind of laid this out here for us um, that that we've got to preserve that that Christ um, is a mystery mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Yeah, guys, I mean, let's be honest. We know we're living in a time when the quote-unquote gospel-centered movement has become this massive thing where, um, I don't know, I don't know where you guys were the first time you heard the phrase gospel-centered, but I hear it everywhere, and I think there's been some really good things that have come out of it. I think in a lot of ways, people that were um, interpreting, especially the Old Testament, um, in a way that almost wanted to reveal the mystery, uh, almost wanted mm-hmm. to say, um, no, we should almost act like when we're, when we're preaching or teaching or reading the Old Testament that Jesus hasn't come yet. Yeah. And I think that that's a huge problem. But I think that there have been some other things as this gospel center movement has almost become popularized. Uh, I think many of us have been tempted to fall into some other errors. Uh, I think that, for example, if you don't hold the tension on the mystery, then one of the things that can happen is that you flatten, especially you flatten the Old Testament, and you almost end up preaching, or if you're in a discipleship relationship or a counseling setting, you almost just end up saying the same thing over and over Mm -hmm. and over again, as if every single text means the exact same thing, where it's just, you're a sinner, uh, let's find Jesus, if you believe in him, all your problems will be solved. And uh, it, that that sort of over flattening, I think, can come from not understanding the tension of um, the, the the reality of mystery as a mode of revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think uh, you know I think we've talked about this some as well, but I think this can happen also. The other thing that can happen is if you don't hold the tension on mystery, then then everything in the Bible just becomes a gospel issue. It's like everything in the Bible is somehow attached to like the very heart of the gospel. And so now you hear anything and everything is being talked about as a gospel issue. The way you bake cupcakes, is that a gospel issue? (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, (laughs) it's not. It's not. Now, granted, we talked about it already at the beginning. You know, all of our theology connects in some ways. You know, these, these disciplines, our Bibles, but... I think this is what he was trying to get at in, in, in this um, section, and I think it's so important. The Bible is a huge book. Like, it is a big book, and it is a big book for a reason. There is a reason that uh, when the Lord revealed the truth about himself to us, he didn't just hand us a one-page, you know, systematic document that had, all you know, the five things that we need to know. Um, and so we, we've got to be able to live within the texture of the text, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ins and outs and the, and the ups and downs. And I think that especially those of us who are into the gospel-centered movement, we really need to take this seriously. We really need to take seriously the fact that there, there is mystery. And even when we teach it, we can make those connections to Christ. We can show how Christ fulfilled it. But we have to, I don't know, it's almost like let people into the drama of it. Let yeah. people into the fact like there was legitimate longing for the coming of the Messiah. There was legitimate, like there's actually something new about the new covenant. And I think that we need to 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 teach and preach and, and disciple and counsel with that tension and that drama in mind. Mm. Yeah, we'll talk about just what how new and what new, what's yeah. new. But I think... <laughs> 
you're right about just wrestling with the tensions that are in the text, um, not explaining them all the way as a one size fits all, you know, two sentence message. I, I can't help but think, I think J. Todd Billings in his book, um, the word of God for the people of God gave an example of when our hermeneutics really looks like, um, Jacob's wrestling with, with the angel of the Lord. Hmm. Um, that, and I, I've, been meditating on that a little bit myself over the past few weeks. Just there's a reason the Bible's so big and so complicated <laughs> and so messy. It's because it forces us to think and to wrestle. Like we have to think deeply. We have to wrestle uh, with the text because it's it's challenging. It's not given in a in a systematic way mm-hmm. um, where it's going to tell us everything that we wanted to know. It forces us to think and spend time. But. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I like and, that. And, and yeah. again, we need systematic theology, right? We need to be centered. We need to have our summaries. But, um, but when, we, when the Bible punches us and it, and it, off, and it knocks us off balance, uh, I think we should let it punch us. You know? and, and when it seems to mess with our system, then sometimes that yeah. is God trying to— We don't sh- like that, but we yeah, need it. Yeah, we yeah. don't like it, but we need it. Yeah. You know? um, I feel like we— need to uh discuss typology yeah because yeah. typology is such an important you know so, thing in this conversation so i'll i'll read he, he uses greg bill's definition so i'll read that and then give you renahan's little uh summary definition and then one of you guys can take a stab at uh going whatever direction you want to go to with it but okay i thought bill's definition was really good obviously he did too since he quoted it at length but um the study of analogical correspondence among revealed truths about persons, events, institutions, and other things within the historical framework of God's special revelation, which from a retrospective view are of a prophetic nature and are escalated in their meaning. And then this is Renahan. According to this uh, definition, actually, no, this is still Bill. My bad. According to this definition, uh, the essential characteristics of a type are one, Analogical correspondence, two, historicity, three, appointing forwardness, four, escalation, and five, retrospection. And then Renahan takes all of that and then he boils it down and says basically um, typology is a, a divinely ordained analogy and escalation in scripture. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's great. I mean, I I, I think we're going to see uh, different examples of types and and how that plays out in covenants. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways typology is the unifying factor that we long for when it comes to covenant theology. So we're gonna see what the way he makes this argument. He is going to see each covenant as an individual covenant that sort of stands on its own. But what then connects all of these covenants to the new covenant or the final uh, covenant of grace? Well. We'll see how we'll see how, we'll see if we call it the covenant of grace when we get there. But is the fact that all of them in some way point forward or point past themselves, and and I think a key part of of what he tries to make here, where where maybe he would even differ from Beale or or add something on top of of Beale, is um, that it's not just about escalation uh, as it pertains to um, quantity, but it is escalation as it pertains to quality. And mm-hmm. so let let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean is that uh, Renahan in this book makes the argument that a type is not just something that is 
when there's a type and then there's what's called the anti-type, which is the fulfillment of it, it's not just a bigger version of the same thing. Mm -hmm. It is bigger, but it is other. It is something different. And, you know, you talked about earlier how that distinction between um, covenant and creation is so big for you as it relates to covenant theology. For me, this is what it comes down to, that, that if a type is just a bigger version of the same thing, then I'm a, I would be a Presbyterian. I'm just, mm-hmm. you just put it like, that. But, but if a type, I mean, that's a strong thing to say, but if a type is something bigger and other, then I'm a Baptist. And for me, that's, that, that's how important this typology conversation is. Yeah, well, he, he calls it the shadow and the substance. So I guess the thing that mm-hmm. in the Old Testament is a shadow and then the actual real substantial thing in the New Testament is a substance, whereas those are two dis- substantially different things. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I love the, the I love the example. I don't know if y'all remember this. He gave he gave an illustration of a menu at a restaurant and then the actual entree. How like the menu might have a picture of your food on it. Yeah. And in some ways, it like clearly points you towards what you have coming mm-hmm. but then when your food comes out you don't eat the menu mm-hmm. you, you you have to close the menu put it down and then you actually eat the food and I, I thought that was like a fun little helpful illustration to think about typology yeah. that it's both that, that there's a there's an organic connection obviously between what you ordered off the menu and the meal that shows up but they're not the same thing they're two different things two different substances yeah and another point he makes is that the the, the types they function on two levels so they function on like its earthly level and then its its spiritual level so that's an important point that mm-hmm. we can't just make the type only about what it's pointing forward to like the type has it has a meaning in its original context so like the example of sacrifices under the old covenant yes they're pointing forward to the greater the ultimate sacrifice of Christ but they they had a real function and a real meaning for an old old covenant jew like it really like mattered it had its own its own function um so i thought that was an important point that he made um go ahead and it just seems it seems like that maps on to the exegesis better you know when you get in and and you're actually reading for example uh, exodus or leviticus you get a sense that um what's being talked about clearly had real significance for those people and they they that God was really commanding them to do those things but there's always just something missing about it it's like it doesn't quite get them where they need to go and i think that that two level typology thing helps us again i think it i think it maps onto the text better than than a one level typology you know i've heard that objection a lot i mean i remember one of my mentors basically said i mean i think he's more of a progressive dispensationalist and he would say you know when i look at the old old testament saints i'm like what virtue what character did any of them have i mean look at david he's a murderer and and an adulterer Mm -hmm. like where is the the power of the spirit there's a distinctively qualitatively massive difference between old and new and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, I look at the people in the New Testament, and besides <laughs> Apostle Paul, maybe I'm like, what virtue, what character? Like, yeah. you know, you look at all these 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 believers, and they're doing the same dumb stuff. I look at First Corinthians, I'm like, these people are tolerating sexual immorality that even the Gentiles wouldn't tolerate. So, I don't know how big of a distinction there should be 
drawn between these two. And I guess I have ulterior motives for wanting to push more continuity just because in my mind, I'm like, I don't know how to make sense of how someone could be a believer without the same power of regeneration and indwelling. Uh, it just, but th- that's, I know that's well, ahead of the no, game a little I mean, bit. Well, we will get into it, but I think in one sense, that is why he already set that up. I mean, for, I think, I think if you were to sit down with him in one sense, um, those believers were getting the same experience. I think that that is the tension that anybody working with covenant theology has to deal with is um, like asking the question, um, does the incarnation actually change anything? <laughs> does Pentecost actually change anything? And I think I think the answer has to be yes, but I think then then when we answer the question, well, what does it change? That's where we have to be careful. I think that's where we have to be careful and not make it seem like somehow God has changed or salvation has changed yep. or redemption has changed. And I think that the answer, the answer to that question is yeah, hopefully one we'll, we'll get to eventually, you know, at some point we, in the book. We don't want to go down the route of there's a different path of salvation. Right. Exactly. I think all three of us absolutely agree on that. That is um, not the right way to do but it. You hear that, you hear that, uh, you know, you hear it all the time. I hear it from some of my, the people in my church, you know, we say things like, well, they used to have to do this, yep. you know, yep. to, to have heaven or to have eternal life, and now we have to do this. And it's like, no, it, it was always faith in Christ. It was always um, now. Now, how that exactly works out, uh, you know. But I, I think the point that Brand is trying to make is, at the same time, we also have to keep the other law gospel, gospel distinction that there really is a historical distinction. There yep. was a time of the law and a time of the gospel, yep. and that. The arrival of Jesus really was refreshing good news for people who were longing for his coming. Yeah. And, and I think that um I think that's what everybody who's doing covenant theology is trying to figure out is yep. where to hold the tension, how yep. to hold the the line between discontinuity and continuity. And we're just gonna say that well, Renahan's gonna say <laughs> that he thinks he's found the balance. You know, he thinks yeah. he's found the best balance. Yeah. And and I think And he, it all rests on it really does all rest on typology. I yeah. mean, it, it does. Yeah. I mean, it just, what it, his understanding of typology is what it, what it all comes down to on, on why he lands where he lands on the spectrum. But. So I want to talk a little bit about this last chapter in this first section, covenant and kingdom, because we, we are running out a little bit of time. Uh, I, I, I'm not in the mode of giving you guys two hour episodes. So we're trying to be somewhat consistent. I know maybe some, there are probably some of you junkies out there who are like, give me the two hour episode. But me personally, I would never listen to a two-hour podcast episode. One hour is about my limit, uh, maybe a little bit longer. So I try to keep it to that. So covenant and kingdom, this chapter, he seems to just kind of do some basic definitions. What is a covenant? Um, what what all is involved in a covenant? I'm not going to go into all the details and like tell you, you know, summarize it and all, but Basically, I think O. Palmer Robertson gave a good definition of the covenant. You know, it's it's a what a commitment uh, or a bond made in blood. I yeah. think is the terminology he yeah. uses. Uh, so it's, and then I guess Renahan goes on to explain you have to have covenant sanctions for it to be covenant. It's not just I make a formal agreement with you. It's also that there are I guess curses or blessings that come along with it. So that's I think that's the idea what Robertson was getting at with the blood. Uh, Terminology is that if you break this, then you die type of thing. There's a stipulation that goes on with it. Uh, it's not just any agreement becomes a covenant. These are 
more formal arrangements with particular stipulations that go along with it. Um, anything to add from just a high-level summary on that? No, I, I think it's great. And I think then from there, he goes on to, to show us that um, there are two different types of covenants. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. that, that that might be a good place to end, you know. Yeah, um, no, I, think, I think you're right. And so you've got... Um, so if a covenant is this bond made in blood, if it's a um, more or less a contract between two parties where there's going to be either promises or sanctions that are going to come from either um, you know keeping or not keeping the covenant, the question is, is that covenant then a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? So uh, Brandon, I'm going to put you on the spot, man. Y'all need to know this about Brandon. Brandon has a phone cover that says 1689 on it. He is all in. He is legit. So yeah, he's one of those online junkies, right? <laughs> not, not anymore, but yeah, you know. I'm, not sure. I'm not online. Dude. <laughs> so if you were going to give us a, just a brief little, what is What is the difference then between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace? So a covenant of works involves something that I have to do, uh, like a do this and live component um, to the covenant. So I have an end uh, of the, Bargain is not the best way to put it, but an end of the commitment that I have to uphold. And if I don't don't uphold it, then there are going to be sanctions that fall on my head. A covenant of grace is something that is all of God, and we'll get into this later. But um, so God, God, he he is freely bestowing gifts on us apart from anything that we do. So, um, and again, we'll get into this later. But the the work of Christ for Christ through the covenant of redemption, it is for him a covenant of works. But then when it is applied to us, uh, it's a covenant of grace because there is nothing that we are actually doing uh, to merit uh, any of the blessings. Yeah, and so every single covenant is either one or the other. It's, well, or it may be some sort of mixture of both, or at least in his his system. Um, And and I think that you you, you made that comment about um, do this and live, and Renahan quotes, it's from Edward Fisher's uh, The Marrow of Mo- uh, Modern Divinity, right? Yeah. And that he, it also flips it. So a covenant of works is do this and live, where a covenant of grace is live and do this. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, I mean, you can almost hear the, 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 the gospel in that. You know, you can almost hear the, the gospel of grace where God is saying, um, it's, it's, it's not that you have to do this so that I'll give you life. Yeah. It's here's life, now go and do this. Yeah. And I mean, it's just good news. Yeah, I mean, clearly, if you're looking at the Bible, you don't have it saying, hey, guys, look, this is a covenant of works. Hey, guys, look, this is a covenant of grace. These are, you know, you have to do the exegetical and theological work to put them together like this. But but we are saying we think that the covenants that we find in Scripture fit under these broad categories. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're saying that they have to be exactly one. It's not saying, you know, covenant of grace has no laws in it. Or, or a covenant of a, a covenant of works has no grace in it. Uh, the Mosaic covenant, I think we would all agree, is a covenant of works. But that doesn't mean there's not grace in that. Right. Uh, when you come to the, the Mosaic covenant, it's very clearly a gracious covenant where God has condescended to to bless His people. But we're saying that there is a distinctive, I guess, inner working to these different types of covenants where they fit underneath one big one of the other banner. More so. So a covenant of grace is one where God has promised to do on our behalf those things. So I think that's the main idea behind that. The last thing I wanted to touch on was federal headship. 
uh, before we wrap up, because I think this is, again, crucial. I know I am using that word a lot, but it, I don't know what other word to use other than that. So this idea of federal headship is that covenantal membership is determined and defined exclusively by the covenantal federal head. So to to figure out if if you're a member of a covenant, you have to just ask, do I belong to the federal head? Did the federal head covenant on my behalf? I personally think this is foundational for the way I understand baptism. Uh, because I, I remember when I, at some point I was going through looking at all the covenants and I'm saying, wow, everybody does have a covenantal head. You have Adam and their posterity. You have um, Noah and his posterity. You have David and his posterity. And it's always this like covenantal figure and their children. But when you come to the new covenant, who is that covenant made with? Christ and his children. Who are Christ's children? Well, they're not physically born of him. They're spiritually born of him. So I found that that is crucial to thinking through, okay, who's the covenant made with? Who is the federal head? That And his children will be getting the blessings or the cursings of the covenant. And I think Christ's only children are those who believe in him. Yeah, and um, I think so, much, so many of our... Um theological problems, especially when it comes to salvation and soteriology come because we don't emphasize what you're talking about, the union with the federal head, union with Christ. Uh, I think we talk, I mean, there's so much in the New Testament in particular about being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Uh, So maybe this is helpful for you. When you see that term in Christ, you should be thinking, that means that Christ represents me. That means that he is my federal head. He He is the one who I am now in. And whatever is true of his covenant and his kingdom is now true of me. And I think that that, that, that helps clear up, I think, a lot of how the missteps that we make um, when it comes to, to some of those issues. Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't want to boil down union with Christ just to federal headship. I don't think any of us do, just to be clear. So, like, being united to Christ means more than just he's my federal head. Uh, there is... That doesn't mean less. There are other benefits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I think that's a good good place to stop. Do you guys have any other comments on this section that you really want to hit on uh, for people to really grapple with? I don't think so. I think that's a good foundation and then we will pick up the next episode on the Covenant Works. Well, everybody who's been listening, we we thank you for tuning in. Um, I think these are fun episodes, so I hope you really enjoy them. Share them with your church members. The Part of the point is to hopefully give a little bit higher than a lay level introduction because we're, we're wrestling with the text which I think this is a fairly good lay pastoral introduction so we're trying to take it a little bit higher than that so after someone has read the book and someone in your church has talked to you about it maybe you give them these resources and say here's some more wrestling with it that might get your juices flowing so everybody's been listening we thank you for tuning in this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast and we'll talk with you guys soon Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then 
Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.